Hello everyone and welcome back to the Scouting Guide Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to try to read all the merit badge books that Scouting has to offer. In this episode, we are going to be continuing the story of the legend of the Mogan Monster. Uh, this is part 3 in Modern Day Encounter. And also, stay tuned towards the end for a special interview. What a great time it is to be a Boy Scout. It was just a month before the Apollo 11 would be launched, carrying Neil Armstrong and an Eagle Scout to the moon. He would be the first man ever to walk upon its surface. Camp Geronimo, at the foot of the Mogollon Rim, was completely finished. This would be its 13th season at the camp, was in the best shape that it has ever been. Programs have been added, and a new pool has been built. Chip 53 from Mesa, Arizona, just had arrived at the camp for their very first season of the year. A scout by the name of Doug Coleman could hardly wait for this camp to begin. He had worked hard for months to earn the $24 registration fee for the week. He planned to take the nature, swimming, and leather-working rare badges, and had already begun working on the requirements for each. With nature and swimming required for Eagle, he would qualify for the rank of star when he returned home. If he completed this badge requirements to the counselor's satisfaction, the very first night was the opening campfire. As roll call was taken, each troop gave the troop yell. From east to west, 53 of the best. Let's hear it for the 53. Yeah. The campfire was amazing. The staff put on skits, songs, and led some really silly yells. Until something very strange happened on what put a stop to everything. Out of the darkness, an Indian entered the campfire ring. Mounted on a horse, he gave a warning to all those present. No hike should be taken this week. The Tonson National Forest is closed, he said. Then kicking his horse hard, he galloped into the darkness. The camp director, Chief George Miller, immediately arose, originally thinking that it was a scout in Indian commercial dress for the opening of the campfire. Mr. Miller said, I don't know who that was, but the forest is open for hikes, camping, and even fires, he said. We'll check again with the Forest Service and let you all know by flag raising in the morning if the forest is open or not. The scouts and their leaders couldn't tell if this was part of a skit or not, but Chief Miller seemed angry. He called for a special cracker bell of the scoutmasters to be held immediately after the campfire. Most scoutmasters didn't mind these impromptu meetings because, as the name implies, they were served all the government surplus cheese and crackers they could eat. At flags raising the next morning, it was again announced that the force was open and that camp leadership hoped that all the troops would take advantage of the beautiful rainbow trail system that surrounded the camp, with hikes that led to many specific scenic parts of the rim. Doug and his best friend Rogers Harwood and Kevin Palmer were relieved. The bi- this being the first year at camp, they had looked forward to the traditional Monday night hike to Turkey Springs that the older boys had all talked about. Tuesday night, they would be camping overnight of another hike up the East Weber. Then, Thursday night would be the annual snipe hunt. They began carving the Ganubi sticks, large gloves with which they would pound on the furry little snipes before they skinned them and ate them. The older scouts told them that they were delicious, tasting like chicken only so tender and so sweet that they might just fall off the bones and melt in your mouth. Monday night came, and after dinner, Pete Tyler, the senior patrol leader, made sure that the first-year scouts were ready. They were each carried a water, flashlight, rain poncho, and a pocket knife. Everything seemed to be in order. The hike to Turkey Springs was a fairly easy hike, the trail being level most of the way. They reached the spring just after dark. The setting was beautiful, 
As they built a campfire, they could hear elk bugling in the distance, obviously coming to the creek below the spring to drink. As Kevin passed the marshmallows around, Pete asked if anyone had a story to tell. Almost all of the older scouts raised their hands. One by one, each took a turn to tell this their scariest, most gruesome story that they could remember, or, if they couldn't remember the story, they would make one up on the spot. There was a story about an escaped convict hiding in the woods. Another story told about how a man heard on his car radio about an escaped murderer from the state mental hospital with a hook for an arm who tied to get into the man's car and had a hook yanked from his arm when the driver accelerated after a stoplight. Supposedly, he still wandered around the rim country looking for a hook which was found hanging on the car's door handle the next morning by the unsuspecting near-victim. Another story was about the spades and the twisty burrs, and the front feud that started between them as an extension of the Pleasant Valley War. The spades were supposedly driven out of the ranch by the Twicky burrs, and that explained how the Boy Scouts had ended up with such a prime piece of property, such as a bargain price. Yet another story told about a young couple ran out of gas upon a lover's leap, overlooking the valley below the rim. The young man left to try to get help. The wind started to blow, and it smelled like it would rain. The young woman heard raindrops hiding the windshield as she drifted off to sleep. Another couple of hours, she woke to see the lights of the sheriff's deputy car. As the deputy approached the car, the lady opened her door. Before she could get out, the deputy told her not to look up, but to walk straight to the patrol car. Curiously got the better of her, and we looked up to saw the headless body of her boyfriend, hanging upside down from the tree under which they had parked. What she thought there were raindrops were actually drops of blood. Listening to cool stories like the man of the first year of scouts uneasy, but none would admit to being scared. Then, without warning, the Indian from the night before rode into the campfire circle. More than the first year scouts were just a little bit scared. Mr. Ray, their scoutmaster, asked who the uninvited guest was. I am Quana, he answered. The forest is close to hiking. Mr. Ray continued that George Miller, the camp director, had checked with the Forest Service that it was apparently open for hiking and campfires. Quana insisted, I've seen a larger bear this evening. For your own safety, I ask that you return to camp. Not wanting to argue and it being fairly late already, Mr. Ray told him his scouts to put the, out the fire and gather their things. The Indian left as suddenly as he had appeared. While walking back to camp, Doug Roger and Kevin noticed eyes peering at them from the darkness. Thinking that it was the older boys trying to scare them, they decided to run straight into the eyes, yelling at the top of their lungs. The fright really did overtake them, for they ran straight into a herd of cows. It was the cows' eyes that they had seen glowing in the darkness. They laughed a kind of uneasy, but real-eyed laughed. Checking the next day with the chief miller, Mr. Ray was told that the Fish and Game Department had made no such calls about a bear being in the area, and the Forest Service confirmed that the forest was indeed open. Mr. Ray turned to the troops' hiking permit to the headquarters to let the camp administrator know of Troops' 53 overnight hike planned up the East Weber for that evening. Camp was set up early, and the entire troop enjoyed a dip in the freezing swimming hole at the base of the rim. Nine o'clock was lights out but everyone was awake in their tents talking. Kevin convinced Roger and Doug that a little nighttime excursion might be an adventure that they would never forget. He could not have known how prosthetic those worlds would be. As they walked west along the face of the rim, it got darker and darker. 
Clouds moved in overhead, and they could tell that they would never make it back to their tent before the downpour occurred. Deciding to look for shelter, they came upon two giant stone pillars, which had a small opening into what turned out to be a rather deep and open cave between them. Using their flashlights for light, they walked into the cavern several hundred feet. Watch out for rats, Roger said. Oh great, watch for bats, just what I needed to hear, Doug said in reply. They heard what sounded like a gust of wind pass through the entrance of the cave behind them, and all three of their flashlights quit working at the same time. Weird, Kevin said. Beyond weird, Doug thought, then suddenly realized in absolute darkness it was in the cave. Holding his hand in front of his face, Doug could not see it. He would like to make his way out, choosing the storm over the darkness, but he could no longer see the entrance of the cave. Can you guys tell the way out? Doug asked. Not a chance, Roger replied. I think we should sit down. Maybe if we are quiet enough, we can hear the storm outside, and that will give us the direction out. They sat, but heard nothing. Pretty soon, they started to talk about some of the ghost stories that they heard the night before, sitting in absolute darkness. Doug didn't really want to think about the stories, but he also didn't want the others to think he was a chicken either. So he sat and laughed and contributed the best he could. What do you think happened with our flashlight? Doug asked, shaking his to try to get it to work. Perhaps it was the skinwalkers, Kevin responded. What are skinwalkers? Roger asked. Skinwalkers are the living dead, the evil spirits that take on the form of animals, humans, or creatures that are a mixture of both, who are doomed to travel the vagabonds through the earth, Kevin said. They have special powers, especially in the dark. Merely taking about them conjures them up. Then, as the three of them sat together, they noticed the blush mist rising from the floor in the cave, which began to illuminate the cave. They heard a voice asking, Who has summoned the living dead? Kevin think it was some sort of prank by the older boys. I did. Douglas was having none of it and said, Let's get out of here. With that, the three of them got up and began to run quickly towards the now visible opening in the rock in front of them. As they reached the opening, they looked back, only to see the Indian who had told them that the forest was closed, sitting cross-legged on the floor almost exactly in the location where they had been sitting, changing in what seemed to be some in Indian dialect. He mentioned the fear and the end of the cave. There, said a creature, or what was it a man in a gorilla suit? At first they thought it was a prank, until it stood up and its eyes began to glow red. The monster was nearly the height of a basketball standard. It raised its arms into the air and let out a terrifying roar. The three boys flew out of the cave, and as soon as they were out into the storm, their flashlights began to work. Weird, said Douglas in an, as an understatement. The boys hurried back to their campsite, only to find that the site has been completely destroyed. Their tents were ripped to shreds, their gear scattered into the winds. Their troop was nowhere to be found. Running at full speed to, from the base of the camp to the rim, they immediately made their way to the camp headquarters. There, sitting on the porch in rain ponchos, was Mr. Ray. Where have you boys been? he asked. Even though some scouts were honest, they made up a story about having to relieve themselves, which was kind of true, considering the circumstances. They told Mr. Ray about the cave that they found and the Indian and the monster inside. Yes, yes, and there was an escape from the mental institution who was still looking for the hook ripped on his arm, Mr. Ray said with a chuckle. He took the three young men that lighting and struck a huge tree near their camp. They had decided to leave their gear and come back to camp. We didn't take a head count until we were all the way down the hill. That's why we discovered when you went with us, he said. The boys apologized, and Mr. Ray said it was fine, that no one was hurt, and that they had just reached camp themselves.
We had come to camp headquarters to report the missing boys, had not, but had not been able to make way, their way out of the staff members who were sleeping in the back room of their headquarters. The next morning, they headed back up the East Weber Trail and checking their campsites and trying to find their gear that had been left behind. The boys thought it was strange that the storm could destroy their campsites in such a short time and scatter their tents in every direction, not just the direction of the wind. Their tents had been destroyed, for each and every one of them had what it looked like five knife slashes through the full length of the tent, about two inches apart. If those marks weren't so spread out, I would have thought that they were made by a bear looking for food, Mr. Ray said. Trying to lend their scoutmasters to the cave where they had come the night before, they could no longer find it, even though they did not find it, the two stone pillars. Perhaps the storm had loosened the rocks and had entered there, had collapsed, Mr. Ray suggested. The boys did not know what to think. It was Thursday night, and time before the annual snipe hunt. The older boys had picked out the location where there was enough snipes to find everyone that Friday night feast. The troop left camp and walked into the trail towards Roosevelt Peak, the most prominent point on the rim, visible from camp. About a half mile to the camp, they began to place the first few scouts by snipe holes, with 50 feet or more between each boy. The first few scouts were told to take two large rocks and bang them together. This would bring the snipes out of their holes. When the snipes appeared, the boys were to shine their flashlights in their eyes then caused the snipes to freeze, the same effect that headlights from a car have on deer. Then, while holding the light on them with one hand, they were able to take their gun sticks in the other and pound the living daylights out of the snipe. There was a real art to snipe hunting. You were only to turn your flashlight on when you could see the whites of their eyes. Otherwise, you might scare them away. Every time a scout would turn the flashlight on, you could hear the older boys ask from a distance, Did you see the whites of their eyes? The lights would almost immediately go out. This went for on for a good 25 minutes or so. Roger, Kevin, and Doug snuck back together. Their common experience in the cave made them very weary of sitting alone in the dark. As soon as they sat pounding their rocks together, they heard a blood-curling scream and the most terrifying roar they had ever heard. Immediately, every flashlight went on. They watched as the monster ran up the mountain faster than they could run down it. Powerful legs drove him. At one of the older scouts, who had gone back to check on the younger ones, had been visually mauled. He was bleeding from every deep slash across his chest, exposing the flesh and even his major organs. It was a terrible sight. Two of the older scouts had been to administer first aid, while the younger ones just stirred and stared in shock. Stay together, yelled Mr. Ray as he ran down the hill at full speed. It was almost a half an hour before the ambulance from the Pine Fire Department arrived. The injured scout was carried down by the EMTs to a location where he could be loaded onto the ambulance. Mr. Ray looked white as a ghost. He and the rest of the troop eventually made their way back to the campsite. The next day was spent giving statement to the sheriff's department. In the official incident report, the deputies wrote that it was a bear attack, but told Mr. Ray confidentially that as long as Gila country has existed, there have been reports of a terrible monster that lives around the rim, strong, Fast and fierce, this creature had been reporting numerous times of the years. Mr. Ray thanked the officers and told them, in his opinion, it was not a bear, but an unknown human humanoid, far lack of a better term. Kevin asked the deputy if he had ever seen a skinwalker. The deputy turned, and as he looked straight at Kevin, Kevin thought that he saw his eyes begin to glow red. The muscles in his neck and shoulders contracted. 
He warned Kevin, do not talk of such things. Kevin nodded, unable to speak. Now, as Doug, Kevin, and Roger return to camp as adult leaders, sight punts are not allowed because they are considered hazing. The forest is often closed due to the fire danger, and that has injured a Boy Scout so has five terrible scars upon his chest. The 120-year-old Spade Ranch house, although still standing, is dire need of repair. Time moves on, and so does the stories. Does the Mogion monster actually exist? Many Boy Scouts will tell you that he does. Thank you for listening to The Legend of the Mogion Monster. This was the final part, so I hope you enjoyed it. The Scouting God Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to try to read all of the merit badge books that Scouting has to offer. And this episode is going to be a bit different because I'm going to be interviewing Kevin Neese. He is a former Boy Scout, and he was a den chief as well as an ASPL. How are you doing today, Mr. Neese? I'm doing good. Also, I'm still a current Boy Scout, and I'm also an Eagle Scout. All right, that's good to know. Um, first off, just tell us a bit more about yourself. Uh, I'm Kevin. I am 16 years old. I'm a junior in high school. I enjoy reading, playing board games, and hiking and camping. Uh, I live in Arizona, where it's very hot. Though it is not right now. It's raining. Um, All right. Um, second question. How did you get involved in Scouts? Well, I was in Cub Stuff to start with, and I just got involved in that because it's something fun to do outdoors, which I've always enjoyed camping. And then from Cub Scout, the natural continuation is into Boy Scouts, and I chose this troop because one of my friends was going here. Cool. All right. Um, what are the requirements to becoming a ben- to become a den chief? Become a den chief. Well, really, there's no actual requirements. You can be any rank, though it's probably better if you're a little higher up because you're going to be teaching mm-hmm. younger scouts. And you have to get both your scout leader and whatever den chief, den you're leading leader permission to do so so okay. you can't just be like show up at a meeting and say mm-hmm. you're a den chief right. you have to get permission from both your scout leader and the leader of the den all right um if there are any life scouts out there how would you recommend researching for an eagle project researching for it well my f- number one suggestion for an eagle project is do something you care about pick an organization or a place that you really enjoy or that is given back to you a lot, like your school, uh, your church, um, a Boy Scout camp, any sort of, sort of thing like that. And then I would also suggest ask them what they need. Don't just come in with an idea and see if they want it. Ask what they would most need you to do. And you're more likely, A, to get a project that will help them and B, to get a project at all. Because if they have something available, you can work on it. Those are some great ideas. Um... What advice do you have for other scouts trying to earn their eagle? Well, first, most of all, make make sure you work at it. Like, you can't just go to meetings and go to summer camp and do nothing else. You have to work on it outside of scouts a little bit. Do your eagle project, work on your merit badges. All that sort of stuff needs to be outside. Secondly, make sure that you uh interact with your troop too don't just be focused on running the requirements because as much as you want to get to eagle you want to enjoy it too so don't just make it a race to get to the end all right um why is getting eagle such a big deal in scouting well first it's really hard it takes several years and it requires a lot of effort you'll have to earn several merit badges which cover a variety of topics including swimming life-saving potentially environmental science hiking, camping, all that sort of stuff. And it really prepares you for life. And so when jobs, 
colleges, other places like that, see that on your resume, they, they, they understand the amount of effort you've put into it and understand you can put that same effort into whatever job or college you're applying for. All right. That sounds like a great reason why they would be a good idea to earn Eagle. All right. Being an Eagle Scout mean to you? Being an Eagle Scout, I think to me, means leadership. That is the biggest portion of what you have to do to get there. Hold leadership roles in the troop. Lead a service project. <laughs> and that's the most important thing you can learn from an Eagle Scout is being a leader, but being a humble leader, a servant leader, helping those around you and not lording your power over them. Okay. Um, what was your Eagle project? Okay, my Eagle project was I, uh, I painted some rooms at my church, Northwest Bible in Tucson, and they have ended up painting the whole children's wing, which is three rooms, two bathrooms, and a hallway. And then I did their creative arts room as well. It was a whole week-long project with several shifts each day where people came in. It ended up being hundreds of hours total of time for each That's person. And it was super hard and almost didn't happen because the paint store didn't get our paint order in on time. Oh, so no. we ended up being one day behind. It worked okay. out though, so. That's good. Yeah. Um, what is your funniest story in your scouting career? Oh, Lots of interesting things have happened in scouting. Should have prepped for this. I would say one of the funniest things that I saw happen was we went one time when we went out on a backpacking trip as a troop. Okay. Four of the guys hung their hammocks in a quadruple decker hammock oh. on the on the same two trees. Okay. And had to like crawl up to get into the top one. Mm -hmm. It was quite entertaining listening to them complain about it, even that's though they funny. were the ones who set it up when we had plenty of other teams. Yeah, that's funny. Um, okay, last question. Um, how do you prepare for a board of review? Well, a board of review is not necessarily seeing what you know it is, but it's also not necessarily really that hard, especially the Eagle Board of Review. It's more, they want to hear what do you want to do with your life ahead of time. What was your Eagles project? What did you enjoy about it? The hard part is getting your Eagle Scout project approved, working through all the stuff ahead of time to get to your Eagle Board of Review. The Board of Review itself is more like a conversation. It's an interview to see what, how have you grown through scouting? What have you learned? And just sort of give them an idea on how scouting has changed your life. It's not a test. It's not, it's a requirement, but it's, it's actually pretty fun. Okay, so it's really more of like a conversation back and forth with yeah. the different people. Yes. Right. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. And next week, we'll be back to reading the Merit Badge books.